everybody. Welcome to School Psych Podcast. Um, we are here tonight uh, with a returning guest that we're super excited for, and it's going to be uh, a good time. My name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Maryland. Um, before I turn it over to Rebecca to talk a little bit about how to participate tonight, I wanted to share a little bit of good news that our Google Drive with all our shared resources is back and functioning again. Yay! So that took a lot of <laughs> like angry emails to Google and nice emails to Google and phone conversations and uh, a lot of frustration but it seems to have come back and Google didn't even like inform me that it was back. It's just reappeared. So I'm really happy for that. But I know that Rebecca has some not so happy news with with uh, some of uh, stuff going up on in Facebook land. But uh, Rebecca, tell us about that. <laughs> uh, yes, I am so sad that sometime yesterday, I discovered that I could no longer access my community page, School Psych, Your School Psychologist. Um, I was just completely, you know, blocked out of it. I, I had no admin access. So I investigated a little. I saw a notification that had popped up that said this such and such person who, when I clicked on him, he seemed to be a student in Pakistan. Um, uh, he, he made me, somehow he made me an analyst of my own page. And then that's all I know. That's all I know that happened. And so I reported it. The page is packed. There were some creepy videos. Please don't click on anything um, that you get, that you see on your newsfeed from School Psych, your school psychologist. I am hopeful, however, that I've reported it 15 different times in 15 different ways. So I'm hopeful that they can restore it. Um, but I just don't know yet. So it will be a quiet community at best over there. Um, but our school, our school psych podcast page, which some of you follow for these podcasts, is still up and running. And um, we can still, um, I'll still be looking tonight and this week as you're listening to this podcast for comments and questions there. So please uh, comment under the event or in messages. Also, hopefully if you're watching live, you can log into your YouTube account and you can comment right alongside the video if you have any questions for our wonderful returning guest. And now I will pass it off to Eric who will introduce our guest. Okay, thank you, Rebecca. And we are hopeful that like the Google Drive, your page will be restored even more quickly than, than the Google Drive was. Uh, well, real quick, before I introduce our esteemed guest, who we are grateful to have back with us, I want to just make a quick advertisement for School Psych Awareness Week. Spa is coming up, as we affectionately call it. And uh, we're just under two weeks away from Spa. This year's Spa is November 11th through 15th, and our theme is Find Your Focus. So we would love to hear from you folks regarding what activities you're doing in your school to spread awareness about the field of school psychology, how you support students, and what you and your, you and your students are doing to find your focus this year. So please feel free to share and message us on social media, uh, log on to NASP and find the SPA resources there, uh, which will help you with counseling activities and activities with parents and students. So uh, now I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Lisa Kelly Vance, who was with us not too long ago talking about self-care. And we're excited to have her back this evening uh, to talk about early childhood mental health. Dr. Lisa Kelly Vance holds a bachelor's from Purdue and received both her master's and PhD from Indiana University. She began her career as a school psychologist in Council Bluffs, Iowa serving children birth through 21 and leading early RTI initiatives. 
She's currently a professor of school psychology at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and serves as the program director. She's also the immediate past president of the National Association of School Psychologists, where her theme was unlock potential, prevention is key. Her research and applied interests are assessment and interventions with preschool children in the context of play, mental health in early childhood, school-based academic and social interventions, preventions, and self-care. So I think many of us would agree that early intervention uh, has the potential to have a huge positive impact on what children need later on in life and how we support them. So we are happy to have you back here with us again, Lisa. And where would you like to start? Uh, talk to us about early childhood mental health supports, please. Great. Well, I, maybe I could just start with a little bit of my journey into early childhood because I was one of those people who went through my entire graduate program, did not take a course about early childhood. You know, the closest was the child development course, but nothing about the assessments or interventions or let alone prevention that would happen in early childhood. And then I started working and had the opportunity to join an early childhood team, a birth to three team. And at first I thought, hmm, I'm in high school. I like it. I like being able to talk to these kids. They're great. But I just thought, what the heck? And I just went for it. And it was life changing for me as um, in my career, just because I was able to meet families who were you know, it was the very first time they were concerned about something going on with their child or had somebody had said, hey, you might want to take your child to get some testing done. You know, and they're they're in a really, um, gosh, challenging, difficult, scary place. And it, it made me think so differently about my role as a school psychologist. And then I started learning more and more about, you know, all the laws that apply and all the family focus and all that practice that we did with um, making things family focus. And I thought there's something more here. There's something that, that we as school psychologists can really uh, impact these early years in a, in, a, in a different way than what we do later on. And you know, with all the research that's out there showing that the earlier you address a problem, then the less the problem is you know, gonna, gonna manifest itself. And so that was a big part of my presidential theme last year with the prevention is key because I thought we have to get there earlier. And you know, I, I joke, some people probably have heard me say, you know, I wanna put the school psychs in the high school out of business because you know, let's fix everything. And so there's not that much to do at, at the high school level. And I know that's not realistic Absolutely, it's not. But but helping and being more systems oriented in those early years. And I think the other thing I want to say about that is that we haven't always thought about mental health in early childhood. And that term, I think, can be really scary, especially to parents and caregivers. And so and then sometimes even rather foreign, like, what are you talking about mental health? So sometimes I will say, yeah, mental health, that's like those social skills, the emotional skills, social emotional learning, right? And so then I think there's more of that understanding of, of why it's important. So, um, and, and just even talking with the service providers about prevention, how do you, you know, we talk about language. I, our speech language pathologist friends are so good 
at getting that prevention going and convincing people of the importance of addressing language skills or tick skills early on. They, they're just so great at that. And I want to be that good at that, of convincing people that, you know, we've got to get uh, better at addressing young children's social emotional lives so that they're more equipped later on. So I'll start us off there and see if there's any area you want me to focus in on more. Or... Well, it made me think of a question. Sorry, Rachel, I'll um, keep going since I jumped in. Um, speaking of the language development skills, do you think that they, to me, it seems like in that really like, you know, birth to three, but three and fours, the language development and the mental behavioral health mm. seems so tied together. There, it's almost hard to tease apart. And I wonder, do you think that there's um, more of a need for us to collaborate with our speech language pathologist friends or uh, to lear even learn more and training um, in that area about language acquisition and language development? I think so. I think the great thing about them is they have that knowledge so we can go to them and ask those questions. I think you're spot on because they're, you know, that it, that teacher, that parent, that speech language pathologist is is going to eventually see some behaviors if the language isn't addressed, and and I, it's not 100%. But the likelihood is has increased, and and it's that frustration of I don't know, I, I'm not getting my needs met in the way that I'm supposed to. People are, you know, I'm thinking, I'm speaking as, as this little child's mind, like I can't get my thoughts across and it's so frustrating. And so, um, so there's, and, it, and it's a bit of a struggle on which comes first though. Do you address the behaviors? Do you address the language? And I actually think you've got to get at that language really quickly and, and get that going because sometimes the behaviors will improve, but um, but sometimes you also have to partner with them and get some behavior plans in place to help those little ones to to better acclimate to their environments. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about um, you know early intervention and addressing the problem and how that's you know so important, um, that got me thinking as far as academic wise. I just recently had read a blog post from Dr. Shanahan, whose expertise is in reading, right? And somebody had written into him about um, how early is too early to be instructing you know, children to, to read. Should we be doing this in preschool? Should we be doing this in kindergarten? And his response was something along the lines of that there isn't really concrete evidence or you know, on when, when is the best um, you know, time to be doing that. Um, and his, kind of thought was, well, you know, it wouldn't be bad to do it early because if there is a problem, then you're able to catch it early. Mm -hmm. um, it gives you more time to intervene. So if you know that, you know, this kid looks like there might be some sort of, uh, you know, a difficulty with academics, if you're aware of that in preschool, then maybe you can do some of that early intervention. What are your thoughts on that academic piece with, with mm -hmm. our little friends and, and how to address that in a developmentally appropriate way? Yeah, I think that's so important to consider because I think it's, how are we defining academics? And that's what, um, like with reading, what what's so great about it is you can be involved with reading and learning to read without actually reading. And so those are the, the, the tasks of the little ones. 
And those are developmentally appropriate, listening to reading, you know, engaging and looking at letters and naming objects. You know, these are all things that build into um, being able to learn to read eventually. And I think that they're um, really good stepping stones toward that. And so, um, so I, I think having, if, if we're going to have academics in the younger years, it has to be in the appropriate context. Mm -hmm. And so, and there, there you have just opened up for me the perfect segue for me to say that context is play. I've done a lot of research in play, do, um, work with play assessments, interventions, but, but the bottom line is kids learn through their play. And so they're learning reading skills. It's that people look at me like, what are you talking about learning reading skills during play? But they are um, engaging in those pre-early literacy activities. And so, so play can, can help them build those skills. And so to me, that's an academic setting for young children. Uh, and it also does help with their mental health and developing coping strategies and in you know practicing sharing and practicing how to deal with it when you're really ticked off that the kid next to you just knocked your blocks over. You know, these are skills that happen because play it gives all these opportunities. And so there's a lot of um, research that links, it's not causal research, but the correlational research linking those early play skills to other skills that happen later in life, whether they're the academic and the specific academic areas, or whether just some social, emotional, behavioral uh, skills that the kids need. So, so I think that that does provide the context for academic growth. And really, if we look at play, we can see are they coming along in those early academic areas too? So, so thanks for letting me talk about play so early in the in the podcast tonight. <laughs> awesome. You mentioned, um, I think, play assessments and whatnot. And mm -hmm. I've been involved um, when I was in North Carolina and in play-based assessment, transdisciplinary yeah. play-based yeah. assessment. Um, and it was fun to do. It was kind of time consuming with, um, but we had a whole bunch of, you know, professionals around kind of watching and taking notes and, and interacting. And, and I definitely in, enjoyed it. It seemed a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more open to opinion, I guess, is like sitting down mm -hmm. and doing a standardized mm -hmm. battery of something, but yeah. so you could use more of your pro yeah. professional knowledge. Um, but how do you see, so do you see that as the yeah. best way to be assessing these young kids? Is it like a play-based assessment or just depends? Um, well, it's, boy, that's a tough one because Rachel, I, you know, having developed, having been inspired by Tony Linder's model of the transdisciplinary play-based assessment and then developing our own model, I, yeah, I kind of do think it is, but it's a bias, you know, coming from a place of bias, I'll say that. Mm -hmm. um, but I think uh, you, you bring up a good point. It's not as standardized as some of the measures we're used to as school psychologists, right? But it, so what I always uh, want to remind people is play assessments are observations, mm -hmm. they're not tests. And so when we make that kind of a distinction, then our, I think it kind of relieves us and, and does what you're saying. It allows us to use our professionalism, our professional judgment in, um, in coming up with what is this child needing. So we've, um, ours is a little different than uh, what the Linder model is. And actually I've had people from Tony Linder's um, 
trainings that have come and said this is a, their complementary approaches, essentially. So ours just looks at the cognitive area, social, behavioral. So, yeah. We have a couple. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Stepping no, over. that's okay. <laughs> we, had, we had some great discussion in the comments. So I wanted to throw those in. Um, Corey shares uh, the question, what do we think about one of the reasons for an increase in early childhood mental health issues being that we are taking away those play opportunities and asking kids to do things that they aren't ready for? And then an additional comment to tag on to that is that also many of the Courtney says also many of the play opportunities are now with an electronic device. Um, yeah. I, that so resonates with me also. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder um, about, you know, sort of the, the sensory regulation that you need to be yeah. able to sit in even a little chair at a little table. Um, if you don't, if you aren't also running around and climbing and learning monkey bars yeah. and things like that. And then about the, the way attention um, is, May, may be um, affected by early use of a, of a device or screen time. What do you think about those things? Yeah, I, I'm gonna, maybe I'll start by talking about that link with play and um, mental health and then um, get to, I'm not as much of an expert on the electronics. I have some some thoughts and so um, we'll, I can I can share those. Uh, but, you know, I, I will say that there, for, for years, people, teachers, our teacher friends have been saying, hey, there's something different going on here with kids and they're having some more emotional problems and, and we're seeing anxiety especially rise in young children. And it's rising at all ages, but uh, at least I think that's the numbers, but, um, but it's in young children, we are seeing a lot. And so, you know, people would say, well, they're not playing as much so that there's, there's a link there. And, and again, a link. Um, I, I will say I, 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 I wasn't so sure. I thought, really, is that it? But if you're looking the past couple of decades, we have seen a dramatic decline in play, in, especially in kindergartens, uh, and then in some early childhood programs. And this is usually administrative decisions, not the teachers that are wanting that. But, um, but then at the same time, we are seeing the rise in especially anxiety, depression, and if, and the link that I can make there is if we think about play as the place where where kids have fun, they are themselves, they kind of work out their stuff through play. And I will also argue so do we. When, when adults get to play, then we kind of work out things. We might have had a rough day, you go and do something fun that evening, you play, then you've worked out something for yourself. And I think that's the same with kids. And so if we're not letting them do that. Maybe maybe they're only playing at home in their neighborhood and not at school. Well, there's a, another context where they really need to have some of that time just to play. And I think the big mis misconception has been play is, is kind of this relief from learning, I think is a quote that some have said, but it's really that is where learning happens. And so I think that there's that misunderstanding. So, so yes, that link is getting pretty evident, but it's nothing that I can say, yes, definitely. I always say, yeah, I can't set up an experimental design and, you know, deny kids play. I don't know. At least I would never do that. So, um, so that part of it, I think has contributed. 
Um, and I think given what I hear from kindergarten teachers, uh, some first grade teachers, just that they're seeing differences in kids and, and attention and restlessness and moodiness. And I just always, I think the experiment is the reverse. Let's experiment by giving them more playtime and see if that can help some of the uh, problems. I don't know the answer to that, but I, uh, the few times that we do that kind of interventions with smaller groups of kids, it's having a pretty good impact on this kid's skills. So, so I think that's a, um, it's a hopeful way of, of thinking about if we could you know, do something as simple as add more play in, could we be addressing some mental health issues? I'm gonna say, I think so. I, I, don't, I don't have all that definitive evidence that we need, but I would say, I, I do think that there's really a lot of hope. It, the second part that when you talk about the um, technology, and I, boy, I, I have thought a lot and hypothesized, and finally I've said, what, what are we going to do? It's there. And, and so we had a, a kind of a, instead of fighting it, join it sort of aha moment in my research area. And I had a, a student who wanted to do a project on teaching kids to play via technology. And so she did that with an iPad and she had some pretty remarkable results. And, and uh, in teaching a few kids, just sit down with that iPad and learn to do some pretend play when they didn't know how to pretend play. And so it's, if they're going to sit in front of those screens and we all know that there are some problems there, let's, let's kind of seize that opportunity in a different way. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't know how to stop the screen time. It's, I take it back to, you know, way back when television, you know, people were telling people that you go blind if you sit too close to the TV and don't watch too much television. And, you know, I'm, even though I wear glasses, I can still see and, you know, all this good stuff. So, so I think that, you know, and if you watch more educational programs that, you know, Sesame Street came along and made it a good thing for kids to watch television. So, yeah, the, the appeal of YouTube is just so, I mean, it's just, I see my own children and they just, ah. you know, if there's no limits set on the amount of time, they would sit there all day long and play. So, I mean, in my house, um, you know, I will allow them an hour a day and I let them do that. Well, I like to sleep yeah. in a little bit later. <laughs> you can have your hour while I'm resting. But yeah, if, if I didn't, put a stop to that, it would just be all day. And I tell parents too, sometimes that I'm, I'm not sure that there's anything directly negative about the time that they're sitting there, but it is taking them away from doing other things yeah. like play. So, yeah. I mean, when we're doing a road trip, you know, I'm not limiting the screen time so much because they're sitting there in the car yeah. and they're not, they're not, they don't have the opportunity to play anyway. So I, I find that some parents think that, yeah, maybe there's, there's something in the light or, and I know that that can disrupt sleep cycles and whatnot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. So like near bedtime might be a concern. Um, but I don't think I've seen anything that says that it's, you know, in itself is negative, just that, like you said, it takes away from other experiences and opportunities. Because if you give them a choice, do you want to go outside or do you want to sit on the iPad? <laughs> I know what the choice, what the decision is going to be. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's a shift, I think, and something we all have to adapt to. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the only negative, well, not the only, but one uh, example of a negative, you know, sort of a warning was that book, um, Glow Kids. Are you familiar with that book at all? No. Um, I'm forgetting the author's name. And he, he was, I believe, a psychologist. And he does share some studies. But it, it seemed to me when I read it a couple of years ago, very skewed towards the negative. You know, and then there's some, um, there's some others books that just say, we just don't know yet. It's like, our, this generation, these kids are our grand experiment. And that seems yeah. reasonable to me because... Yeah. I don't know if the research that Glow Kids was citing, you know, was more than one study or an, an inferential hypothesis. But yeah, for anyone interested in a really an alarming view of technology. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do see sometimes, like I, I remember I was in the grocery store once and I saw a, a family that I had worked with and their son was, um, nonverbal and a lot of behavioral difficulties. And, uh, you know, I always had felt for the mother because he was a handful and he was difficult to manage in the school setting. And so I, I crossed paths with them in the grocery store and he was in the cart, you know, attached to a phone watching videos. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, like that's how she has a little, you know, is able to grow grocery shopping. Yes. And so I understand that there's yeah. times when you, I mean, that's a, was a safe way to keep him kind of contained and engaged because it would have been difficult otherwise. So I, I feel for, and I understand that, I guess I, I'm more sympathetic to now that I have my own children that I understand that I can yeah. smell something electronic and keep them safe and keep them contained and keep them right where I want them to be instead yeah. of wondering, getting into things. But uh -huh. <laughs> Also makes me wonder a little bit, um, there was a little conversation going on about our reduced recess time and reduced lunch time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about how much it takes for kids to kind of, create an activity or get into an activity yeah. and you know we throw them out on the playground you have 10 minutes to work things out and figure things out and do something fun and it if if there's no structure or there's limited structure i'm sure it can become a free-for-all um, but have limited value if we don't give the kids enough time to actually engage in something meaningful or perhaps structure something that could lead them to engaging in something meaningful as well. Mm -hmm. And then I imagine kids who have social anxiety, then it just becomes a hot mess for them too, probably. So, yeah, yeah I think, um, yeah, having that time at, at, at recess, but I also would add the time that a lot of programs have for centers uh, in early childhood classrooms, I think, have making sure that there is a not just one pretend play area but multiple mm -hmm. theme related pretend play areas can be so beneficial to kids because it does exactly what you're talking about eric it has that time that they can spend you know assigning okay you're playing this role you're playing this role or we're going to pretend we're baking a cake or we're going to what, pretend we're going to work, going to school, you know, all these different things that, that, we, that gets their, that gets their brains going. And actually there's some, some researchers that talk about uh, play as a way to, to develop the brain and um, that you can see it de develop differently with more play. And I think that that's, 
one more reason, you know, to have more of that opportunity. But yes, it's that negotiation, especially as they get more complex in their play. Um, the kids who are good at it, model it for the kids who need a little more assistance with the play. And so there's a lot of good scaffolding that can go on there. Uh, I also think a little bit of teacher involvement periodically can be very, very helpful. They shouldn't interfere, but sometimes they need to prompt it and assist with it too. And that's, I think it's kind of a fun role as a teacher. So, um, and, and along with that, you mentioned the, the social aspect and we have had um, many years of doing some service learning projects in our uh, local Head Starts doing, um, you know, where we go in, uh, my students do interventions with the kids who need play or social interventions, but we always do our social interventions in the context of play. And so that the children, even they might get a little direct teaching outside of that context, but as soon as they can get the steps in the play, or in the um, social skill, they're going into that context of play to use it. So whether it's sharing, asking a friend to play, whatever it is, then you know you can go in. The adults can do nice little coaching to these kids to help them with those social skills. You know, remember what we said: what was step one, what step two, and so that they're getting that generalization piece. And uh, we're seeing again some pretty remarkable results in a, in a very short period of time. And I'm talking like four to six weeks, kids can be engaged in some much better social skill behavior in, in their early childhood settings. And I, I, I'll take us back to what we talked about at the beginning with the prevention side. If you can start giving them those skills at the age of three or four, then they're not having to learn them at the age of six or seven when they're working in cooperative groups and then getting frustrated because they don't really know how to cooperate. And so doing it early is less time consuming for teaching the skill and less interfering with their learning later. Sure, yeah. Um, Lisa, Courtney asks a great question. Do you know if there's any research that examines the differences between structured play, like teacher modeling a game or centers um, and toss on the playground play? Oh, that level. Um, there, I don't know of research that directly compares that. It could be out there. Our work has been more um, on that pretend play, the I, I call it the cognitive side of play and less about the recess um, side, although I very much believe in the recess side of it all and see that that's um, very needed for our kids to, to, um, to benefit you know, physically throughout their day, kind of let off some steam, et cetera. But so the direct comparison, I'm, I'm not really sure of. Um, yeah, it's an interesting. Uh, it is. It, I'd love to know if anybody does know of research doing the comparison. I mean, I just, my guess is that we would see that, that kids are developing skills that are being practiced. So on the playground, it's more of the turn-taking physical skills, that kind of thing. And so when they're engaged in that, um, that's gonna develop. Mm -hmm. In the uh, center time at the kitchen area where they're assigning roles of a family making dinner, that's that's really a lot of thought goes into those roles and acting them out and kind of adding on to the last person's comment or behavior, then you do something and then they do something, you know, the give and take there 
is is um, not as physical in nature. Most most preschool teachers hope anyway on the inside things aren't as physical, but um, but they really do get those cognitive skills going. Yeah, and I, I feel like it might be that um, at certainly centers and some other um, in, in the classroom kinds of play may be more adult directed, whereas, like you said, they're practicing and it's more yeah. child directed. So, yeah, I I, yeah, and that there's um, there's some research just on the adult direction in general, uh, and and some usually what it is is some facilitation can be good, but it's is um, the kids. It's it's really important for kids to learn how to direct their own play. Now, I will step back from that comment and say, we have far more kids out there that don't know how to play than we ever realize. It's, it, it's shocking. And those kids need direct teaching of play. They need either an adult or, or a, even a peer or a child. We've had a lot of those uh, parents have taught their children to um, play skills. So, um, and we've had a lot of success in teaching play. It's not complicated. It's pretty easy and it's very effective so it and then that allows these kids to be able to engage with other kids as opposed to always engaging with the adults so a lot of times those kids that don't either have some problems with social skills or play skills they seek out adults who are more accepting of them than their peers who might say well, you don't know how to do this you know so not to, to bring it back to the electronics, but it, that just made me think of um, my, my children watching YouTube. They find these weird channels of people playing with like dolls and figures and da, 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 da. And then when I see them play on their own, I feel like they mimic some of that. So I don't yeah. know if it's good or what, but. Um, I, that's, yeah. And, and they're, they're learning play in a different way. And I think that that's, that's a really good point of, um, Maybe it's not better, not worse, but different in terms of how kids are going to learn. Now, I hope they always get that interaction at some point, that ability to practice it with other kids, to experiment. But if you're learning new strategies of, of playing, that I, there you might have just pinpointed a real benefit of technology and your kids going out on YouTube. Yeah. But I mean, there's something to be said, because uh, when we're talking about play in general, I mean, other species play, you see dog, yeah. kittens yeah. play and dogs yeah. play. And so, so clearly this is, there must be some evolutionary benefit, because yep. you know, we see this across. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And across all cultures. So, yeah. If you do have a young child um, who's experiencing some anxiety or depression or, um, behavioral um, challenges, How, what, what do you recommend in terms of intervention mm -hmm. so that they can engage in play and successfully? Well, um, I think that actually we, we do have to address the anxiety. I don't think just teaching the play is gonna do it. It, it could with some kids, you know, we're all good at experimenting doing uh, with, with the different interventions. I think, um, I, I think, Parents uh, need strategies for uh, working with a young anxious child. I mean, it's like I said, it's it's pretty common. And so uh, I think, but I think sometimes we make it 
overly complicated. I think um, having just ways of, well, one strategy is a child comes home from their preschool or school and the first thing they get to talk about from the, you know, the parent command is something such as, tell me the good things that happened today. And it's, it, it's, a, it's like mini, it's baby CBT a little bit, you know, of, of getting them to, to just shift their thinking rather than coming home and, oh my gosh, this happened and this happened and this happened, but just structuring that for the child so that they get more and more practice with the positives. I think teachers can do that. What, what are the good things that happened today in our classroom? And I also am becoming more and more of a fan of just things like the deep breathing, the calming kits that some um, classroom teachers are putting together or school psychs are putting together for teachers. We can have them developmentally appropriate things that uh, kids can go and, you know, bubbles or um, glitter jars or squeeze balls, whatever it is um, that helps them relax. And I'm, I'm really seeing some great impact of something as simple as having a calming kid in the classroom or I, I would love to see them at home. So that when, you know, there's anxiety times in home, at home too. And so, um, so having the, that available and, and, and teaching the kids, it's not just something that you just put out and say, oh, I hope they go to it. But it's, you know, here's how we use this. And Wow, if the teacher could model it, the parents or caregivers could model, you know, they all have their calming kits. Okay, I'm here's how I'm feeling, you know, and this is a great way for kids to learn how to identify feelings too, you know. I'm 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 not feeling real happy right now. So I think I'm just gonna go do something that makes me happy, or I think I'm gonna, you know, I'm feeling you know, you, if you use the word anxious, you you really have to explain it. I, I there's there's some great infographics and, and um, charts and things like that about just ways that kids can describe what they're feeling that's not called anxious or depressed or something. And, you know, my, um, you know, my, my heart feels weird. Well, might be anxiety, right? And I mean, we all know that, but they don't. So that, oh, well, when that happens, let's try some deep breathing. And these are really, really simple strategies. And that's why I think we can't make it complicated with the little ones. Um, and and so the more straightforward, the better. The more things that the the teacher can do, that the parents and caregivers can do at home. So, did that address it enough? Okay. Sure. I'm looking. We're looking. I think at all the. We've got some great comments going on. Um, people are <laughs> even a little sidebar about. Um, you know. I like the comic is just not glitter. Glitter equals anxiety. <laughs> I know that anytime I do any type of crafts with my, with my kids in my office, the, the custodial staff is like, oh no, <laughs> she's at it again. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, some people have threatened to ban glitter just because of, yeah. But you're right, there's, you know, I, I love it. My grad students, I remember one year, a bunch of them were making those glitter jars. They were bringing them to class to my classes. I'm like, okay, so you're anxious because of me, but you know, they had their strategies. So it's, um, I, I think that again, we have to model it for them though. So, and there's nothing wrong with us having that glitter jar. So. Mm -hmm. 
I do love the, the deep breathing strategies. Um, those, those, it, it, it really shocks me how the, well they work at almost any age level. Now, you got to, with anxiety, that the one thing is you got to be really careful because, um, well, I used to, in large groups, I used to do um, some of the breathing techniques where you do some counting. Well, if you have anxiety, you're, you may not be able to do the inhale as long or the exhale as long as the person sitting next to you. So I stopped doing that. Um, and so just say, you know, try to work with that child, with that person and say, you know, okay, now we're going to take a deep breath. Here's what it feels like. Here's what it looks like when your belly rises. And so teaching that so then they can do it on their own. Um, and it, Very cool. it can help. Um, I have a question. Um, I, I've traditionally at my schools, we've had like half day preschool. So we'll have an AM class and a PM class. We've switched this year to a full day preschool, um, which has been a little bit difficult, but I, I, there was also no nap built in. And I think that that's uh, at least my own children, like they needed a nap when they were four years old. Mm -hmm. um, is there any recommendations that you could give us for how to, you know, how should preschools be kind of set up? Like, should there do, do lots of programs, do naps? Um, what, what, what does a preschool day look like or, or you know, in our oh, Yeah. Um, Please tell me they're not doing worksheets. Uh, that would just, yeah. Uh, I know, because some are, some I've heard stories. I, I really, again, I'm gonna take us back to, there has to be enough opportunity for play. There has to be enough opportunity for kids to learn that way, for them to get feedback in those um, environments. I think, um, I, I don't know the research on naps. I'm going to admit that. I um, always laugh that I was not one of those kids who liked naps. And so for me, if you would have sent me to that school, I would have been in heaven. What? I don't have to nap? But there are a lot of kids who just simply can't make it through the day. And they're going to, you know, by three o'clock when they go home or whenever it is, they're just going to be a mess. And that's um, where I think respecting and and accepting those individual differences at the young years. And I think there, I'm guessing there's some wonderful creative administrators and teachers, et cetera, who could come up with some great ways to have, you know, a nap time. And if you weren't napping, then you had quiet time doing something else. Um, because it just seems like even if you're not going to nap, it's going to help. You're going to be, it, it's going to help to be calm and do some, Kind of restorative type uh, actions at, at I don't know at some point during the day, but um, you know, and and so I I don't know I I was just looking up some of the research on all day kindergarten even, and and it was not what I expected. Some of the research is not showing that there's a a better effect of all day kindergarten over half day, and I thought wait a minute. And I really wanted, to, I didn't dive deep enough into it. I was, I'm guessing again, it's probably back to that. It depends. It depends. It, we're not seeing that impact because kids are so different at those ages. Um, but I'm going to argue they're different 
in high school. There are the kids that can get out of bed at seven o'clock or be at school at seven and the kids that would do much better at 10 o'clock and going starting school at 10 o'clock. So, um, so it, it's, there's a lot of variability, but um, it's just got, it can't be, it, I guess the, the one thing that, that makes me a little nervous is that the word preschool and how much is an emphasis on getting them academically ready because there's a lot more to being ready for school than the pre-academics. So there's the behaviors, the social emotional life, their mental health world. If we can get all that together, they're going to be more ready for school than if they just have a, a heavy dose of, you know, early academics. For sure. We have a comment, everything earlier and earlier in kids' lives these days. And yeah, Such well said. It it is, and I, um, I, well, I often refer to um, the Finland Kindergarten Report that many people are probably aware of, but I think it's so important to, for us as school psychologists, to to know about that. If any of the listeners out there aren't familiar, this is the. Um, it was an article in the Atlantic a couple of years ago. If you Google. Finland kindergarten play in Atlantic, you'll get it. Uh, and it was where in Finland, they don't teach reading in kindergarten. The curriculum is play. And so the reporter was there kind of like, well, wait a minute, how does that happen? Where do they learn to read? And they said, well, by third grade, everybody's on target. Everybody's, you know, where, you know, where they should be. And so it's just a different way of looking at it. I really want to see the follow-up to that to see what's going on with their mental health, what's going on with their social emotional lives. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't seen anything on that, but I, I think it'd be so interesting. And it's funny because that blog post that I talked about from Dr. Shanahan referenced that and said that, you know, there are some differences in, for example, learning to read in English versus learning to read in, in their language. Yep. And that it, yep. English is more irregular, and, and so it was tough to, to make that comparison. But I'm going to yeah. find that blog post, and I'll post that for anybody. That oh, that'd be wonderful. And I think it's a great point. You know, I'm, um, but as somebody who I, I don't know that we're, I, I know we're not a Finland. We're not able to do that. But I think we have to learn from it. Mm -hmm. I really think we have to learn that. You know, maybe sitting down and learning all the you know reading sentences and whatever is happening in the kindergarten may not be the right thing. Um, so. What about, um, and I know, and any last questions, if you guys could post it, because we are running out of time, but oh, um, what about research, I know it goes by fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, research on the long-term effects of early, um, you know, preschool exposure and things like that. Cause yeah. I've seen mixed things and I've heard mixed things about, you know, like looking at Head Start and that some, that, maybe it doesn't maintain that you can't tell the difference between a child who right. had the preschool experience versus a child that didn't have the preschool experience, um, you know, a couple grades down the line. Could you speak to any of that or do you? Yeah. Know and the, oh boy, that research is really kind of tough to, to dig through, isn't it? Just um, there, I think that one consistent finding is that the quality matters. So just a preschool or just a head start, I'll even say that, isn't enough. It's it's the, the quality, the teacher quality, the environment quality, 
um, the interaction quality that really, uh, really matters. And we have to get better. We have to put more time and energy into just that because that then we are preventing um, problems later on. Yes, I also wanted to add, as we're starting to look for last questions, um, if you are listening to this on your commute and you are making a connection and you have a thought you want to add or a question you want to ask, um, not in real time, please also tweet me. I think that my new focus, since I've been Facebook hacked, will be Twitter. So um, just tweet at using the hashtag psychedpodcast. We also have a psychedpodcast um, Twitter page, and Rachel, Eric, and I all have our pages too. But if you use the hashtag, we will find you and continue that the conversation over time. Great. And I just want to say I'm so excited we're having this because I, one of my frustrations is that school psychs aren't enough involved in early childhood. And I think it's a responsibility of all of us to make that impact on the early years. If you're in a high school, you might have parents who are students and helping them understand the importance and helping them be um, more in tune with how to develop good mental health in their, uh, in their children. I think we can, gosh, the other thing I always think about is like, if you, if you have like a, a way that you can get older kids to go help younger kids and mentor them. There, I'm seeing a lot of positive impacts of that type of programming and helping the little ones. And just anything that 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 we can do to, to get the word out that the social emotional life is so important. So I, I want more of us in early childhood. It's way more fun too, I think. <laughs> it is fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Um, let's see. As we're wrapping up, um, well, what I wanted to thank you again for for coming not just once but twice, and then even coming up with a second episode after having experienced us the first time. So we're I, I'm loving back. it. I love being a listener to the, of the podcast, and I love doing this. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and then I want to remind viewers that our next podcast looks to be um, on the 17th. And we have Dr. Ryan Farmer coming back to talk about functional analysis. So uh, functional analysis specifically within the school setting and how to pull that off. So I think that'll be a good one as well. Um, all right. So we'll, we'll wrap up. And uh, thank you again, Dr. Kelly. Thanks. Oh, thank you, everyone. Thank you so much.